Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Tensions are rising in northwest Africa, between the region's two old rivals, Morocco and Algeria. The key to the latest quarrel is a long contentious strip of land along the Atlantic coast, Western Sahara. And among the many things surging in price these days, here's one that should make a story. Newsprint. We explain why publishers of newspapers are feeling the squeeze. But first... At least 2,000 migrants are encamped at Belarus's border with Poland. They're gathered on the European Union's doorstep, in forests where they are cold, hungry and desperate. They've tried breaking through the border fence into Poland. But they have not made their way to the border independently. The Lukashenko regime starts to behave as a gangster regime because it's hurting them and they don't know what else to do, so they try to undermine the European Union by attacking and launching a hybrid attack against the member states of the European Union. A spokesperson for the EU said yesterday it was a tactic of the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, importing would-be migrants from the Middle East, dumping them at the EU's borders and urging them to cross. These desperate people have become a weapon in an ugly dispute between Belarus and the EU. Alexander Lukashenko thinks that he is in a great power game right now with the European Union. He thinks he has identified a real weakness for the EU. Richard Ensor writes about Eastern Europe for The Economist. Migrants turning up on their doorstep, testing that tension between EU liberal values, but also a, a deep fear of migrants arriving in droves and the political chaos that that can cause. So he really wants to turn the screw. How did Mr. Lukashenko end up in this great power game with the EU, as you describe it? This is a despotic regime on the EU's border that is currently under sanction from the EU. Uh, The president wants to change the dynamic. He wants to show how dangerous he can be. He wants to punish and exact revenge on those who have sought to undermine his power. The EU has been gradually imposing sanctions against Mr Lukashenko's regime since he stole an election in 2020. He crushed the uprising that ensued as a result of that election theft, and he has started going after Belarusians who are living abroad in countries like Lithuania and indeed Poland. There's been a a series of calculated attacks, most notoriously in May of this year when there was a, a plane flying from Greece to Lithuania to EU states, 
over Belarusian territory. And his men fabricated a bomb threat in order to bring that plane down at Minsk airport just to arrest a critic on board who was firing off insults on a telegram channel. So as a provocation to the EU, Belarus has assembled thousands of migrants and sent them almost at once to the Polish border. How did it manage to do that? Well, this is a plan that is nothing if not innovative. We are reading reports of travel agents from Belarus operating in Iraq, offering packages with Belarusian visas, flights and hotels to Minsk, and the promise of transport into the EU to a country like Germany. So people are are buying tickets and, and hopping on planes from Erbil, from Baghdad, going to Minsk via regional transport hubs like Dubai, like Istanbul. And when they arrive in Minsk, they're being transported on buses with armed Belarusian guards leading the way to places along the border crossing with barbed wire and trying to get them in a standoff situation with Polish border patrol. The Belarusian guards stand behind them. They cannot leave Belarusian territory into Poland and they can't retreat from the border either. So they're really stuck there setting up tents. This is likely to be a protracted standoff in in this case. And it's something that's been happening at an increasing scale ever since August. And how has Poland been responding to this? Well, the Polish government has been unsentimental about its attitude towards migrants, especially migrants from the Middle East, for a very long time. This year has been the first occasion where a large number have been turning up on its doorstep. And it it has been criticised by many for what are called pushbacks, where if somebody makes it across the border into Poland, they have been accused of pushing them back across the border into Belarus, which uh, is illegal under international law. Of course, there's no love lost here between Poland and Belarus. Reżim białoruski atakuje granicę polską, atakuje granicę Unii Europejskiej. The president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, is coming out and calling this an attack on the Polish border by the Belarusian regime. He is reminding his voters that Polish blood has been spilt in decades past defending this border and they will defend it again. So there is a right old mood of nationalist determination sweeping Poland at the moment. And for his part, what's Mr. Lukashenko, Belarus's president, been saying about the situation and about the Polish accusations? Well, Belarus has taken on the mantle of the the great defender of migrants. If you watch Belarusian state TV, you will see children crying and you will hear that these migrants are very unfortunate victims of bloodthirsty, cold-hearted European hatred for anybody who is different from them. Mr. Lukashenko denies any orchestration of this situation, any importation of migrants. As far as he and his his propaganda channels are concerned, the migrants have miraculously turned up on the EU's doorstep and the EU is being very beastly in the way that it's treating these migrants. And all the while, he has been in touch with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. It is not clear whether the two are co-conspiring in what's unfolding on the border or whether Putin is trying to talk Lukashenko down from this strategy, which perhaps lacks subtlety by Russian tastes. Where does the European Union stand in this? One could be forgiven for thinking that the EU is really crossing its fingers and hoping that this all goes away. It cannot deploy its own border troops at the border without Polish permission. Poland has said, no, we've got this, we're perfectly fine. In the immediate term regarding the border standoff, the EU can do little more than decry what it sees on the border, but more pressingly in some ways, it's got to look at this migration path that's been constructed 
uh, by Lukashenko in, in the recent months and, and work out how to stop these planes flying from Istanbul to Minsk um, or from, from Iraq to Istanbul in the first place. And that is something that's going to require a lot of diplomatic finesse and will probably take some time as well. So this is a crisis that may still escalate before the EU really gets a grip on it. And where will this leave the thousands of people who are now camped at the border? These migrants on the border have the eyes of the world upon them, which is about the nicest thing you can say for their state right now. Their plight is very serious. The Poles are not feeling very sympathetic for them. The Belarusians don't seem to be particularly interested in their well-being. Winter is approaching. Many migrants in the past months have died trying to cross this border. The country that many of these migrants want to end up in is Germany, which has accrued quite a reputation for itself over the years as a place that's welcoming. We don't go to Poland. We all go to Germany. Oh, yes, Germany. Uh, why, why you go to Germany? It's a, uh, the, the, the country, the good, the good country. Of course, that requires pass, passing through Poland. This is the kind of situation that would have produced a lot of hand-wringing within the EU five years ago. However, the, the, the accumulation of political rancor within the EU has gotten to a point now where a lot of critics have grown quiet and they're willing to watch this kind of thing as the price of, of maintaining the EU. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Patrick. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. 1991. This weekend, Morocco's King Mohammed said the country's sovereignty over Western Sahara was a firm fact, one that was not up for discussion. It all comes at a time when Morocco's economic and political stock is on the rise, a fact that has many Algerians worried. The Moroccans at the moment are feeling surprisingly confident, almost to the point of being cocksure. Nicholas Pelham is our Middle East correspondent. They see Algeria on the decline, they see themselves on the ascendant, and I think there is a real risk that that confidence could lead to a greater battle for influence across North Africa and to the south. Nick, remind us, what's the source of the tension between Morocco and Algeria? Algeria and Morocco are the two giants of northwest Africa, of this region called the Maghreb. Algeria until now has had the benefit of being a larger economy because of its oil revenues. But as those begin to decline, as the region prepares for a kind of post-oil age, I think what we're seeing is an increasing battle of hegemony between Algeria and Morocco over the region. 
primarily their struggle at the moment is focused on Western Sahara, which is a strip of land running south along the Atlantic coast towards West Africa. And that's where Morocco of late has been expanding its influence. It's pushed into a contested area at the southern rim of the Western Sahara. And Algerians are really not happy about it. Why is the Western Sahara so important to understanding the conflict? In the 1970s, all the neighbours of Western Sahara, the Mauritanians, the Sahrawi population in the territory, sort of backed by Algeria and Morocco, fought for control of the territory, which lasted pretty much for 16 years until a ceasefire in 1991. That came with a, with a UN mission, which was supposed to hold a referendum of the Sahrawi population on whether they wanted to be an independent state or part of Morocco. But that referendum hasn't taken place, and that's infuriated many Sahrawis, the local population, and their kind of armed wing, Polisario, who announced a renunciation of that ceasefire pretty much after 20 years earlier this year. What's changed recently to turn up the heat? Morocco feels that it's got the wind in its sails. Economically, it's come out of COVID in better shape than Algeria. It's vaccinated far more of its population. It's focused far more on renewables. It's been emboldened by the United States, which uh, recognised Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara. It was one of President Trump's final acts in office. As part of that deal, it's normalised its ties with Israel and is getting support, possibly military support, from Israel. And it's been on the diplomatic offensive in Africa. It joined the African Union, the continent's primary organisational body. And the reason that this territory is so important for Morocco is that, you know, without the Western Sahara, it's really cut off from West Africa, where it sees its future. And it's also sort of hemmed in by Algeria. It would be kind of hemmed in by the Atlantic, by Europe, where access is restricted. So, you know, Western Sahara from Morocco really is important as a kind of bridge to the rest of the continent. So, Nick, what does this look like practically? I know that you've been to Western Sahara recently. What do things look like on the ground? So, I was there a couple of weeks ago. I flew down from Casablanca to Dakhla. I remember Dakhla being a kind of small fishing village when I was in Morocco 20 years ago. Today, it's a kind of burgeoning resort. They've got sort of tourists coming in from Europe. They've got a lot of Moroccans flying in. And you speak to hotel operators, they're, they're saying investors are coming in looking to buy up more land for development of hotels. You've got a new, really quite sizable port that's being built on the coast. You've got a new coastal road. You've got canning and fishing industries, new solar farms and wind farms under construction. The territory is now linked to the Moroccan grid. And you've had a really pretty large influx of Moroccans into Western Sahara to the point where the kind of local Sahrawi population is swamped. So there's really quite a lot of development going on. Well, it certainly sounds like Morocco is on the front foot. What do the Algerians make of it? The Algerian regime is seething. It's had this history of bad relations with Morocco. Algeria historically is a sort of revolutionary republic. It looks at Morocco as being a kind of a reactionary monarchy. And there's been a whole wave of protests in Algeria, which led to a change of president. You've got a population which is deeply disenamored with the current leadership. And there are some who say that Algerian regime needs sort of a, a foreign diversion to try and project internal discontent outwards. So the Algerians have given backing to Polisario. They've recognized the um, Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. They're concerned about Morocco gaining headway in the Africa Union. They're pushing back. They've moved some troops to the borders. So I think the Algerians feel concerned. They feel they're on the back foot and they're looking at a way of trying to recover the ground that they've lost. Is there anything to suggest that it could escalate beyond a spat? 
I mean, both countries have a history of a war of words, but Morocco has been spending much more heavily on its military. Last year, it spent 30% more than previously. The Algerians have the continent's biggest military budget. The Moroccans have been pushing into a neutral zone in a contested area. They've been carrying out drone strikes, which killed a senior commando of uh, Polisario. As I said, Algeria has been moving troops into the region. And then, you know, there are an increasing number of sort of flashpoints. In September, two Moroccan truck drivers were killed crossing the desert. Western diplomats suspect that perhaps, you know, Algerian intelligence could have had a hand in that. If other countries do start to be drawn into this spat, then yes, I think there's a real risk that we could be in for an escalation. Nick, thanks very much for joining us. Patrick, thank you for having me. Reading a print newspaper is much like it was a decade ago. But the price of printing one is not what it used to be. Publishers are seeing a surge in costs, creating tension between the newspapers and those running the paper mills. For British newspapers, the price to print their product has risen by over 50%. And this is really pushing up expenses for newspapers everywhere, from, from Mumbai to Sydney to London. Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor. One British newspaper boss told me that imposing these prices on newspapers, which are already struggling commercially, he said it's like tasering an elderly person who's already on a pacemaker. Tamsin, what's pushing up the price of newsprint? It's a combination of long-term structural stuff and then more short-term cyclical factors. So if you go back in history, paper mills have been long-suffering as newspaper circulation has declined over time. And the paper mills, it's really important to understand where they're coming from. So they've got these massive modern state-of-the-art machines that cost hundreds of millions of dollars each to get up and running. It's just been incredibly difficult for them to face up to the fact that newsprint is just in a kind of structural decline. But I think in the last few years, they finally really moved to take out newsprint capacity. So what they did is they started for the first time shutting the really ultra-modern machines, the ones that really pump out a huge amount of newsprint. And they also converted some of those machines into creating a different kind of paper, brown paper, for e-commerce packaging. And why have they done that? Of course, we've seen e-commerce boom. And there's a vast demand for packaging e-commerce paper, which is usually brown. So when they take out that kind of capacity, they've moved from being price takers in the past now to being price makers. And then if you move on to the short term reasons, the paper mills have had a various kind of cost shocks. So they're facing sharply higher energy prices because of the energy crisis that we're in in some parts of the world. They've got higher logistic costs from labour shortages in freight and transport. And there's also a bit of surge in the cost of waste paper, which is what goes into paper mills to create the new paper. So the cost of that has gone up. So the combination of price pressures on the paper mill side, plus the newspaper's absolute need to have the paper has created a really big price shock. 
And how big are the price rises in different parts of the world? Are newspapers in some places suffering much more than others? Well, it's interesting that it's such a global phenomenon, and that's partly because the paper mills themselves are really concentrated mainly in Europe and Canada. And then you've got newspaper publishers in many, many different countries all drawing paper from those sources. I think the biggest price rises are being experienced in Europe. So a UK, large UK newspaper publisher told me that they're facing in quarter one, 2022, two price rises that are 50 to 70% higher in that quarter compared to quarter one 2020. What's the effect been, Tamsin, on the relationship between the newspapers and the paper mills? The relationship really used to be like a partnership, two essential parts of the same industry. Then it became more transactional. And now I think we're really at the shouting stage between the paper mills and newspaper publishers. You know, the papers feel that the mills are taking advantage of them and the fact that they really need more paper just as economies reopen and sort of demand returns a bit. And the mills' um, rejoinder is that they've been really struggling financially for a long time in this market and that they can't be the ones to save the industry by being unprofitable themselves. So, yeah, the relationship is really fraught right now. But how serious in the end is it for newspaper publishers? Surely they're much more dependent on digital revenue streams now and much less so on print copies. In terms of the impact on publishers, you know, words like catastrophic, existential, the phrase a perfect storm are being used. And the thing is that newsprint costs are a really large share of costs, the, the second biggest after labour. And if you look at the margins that newspaper publishers are often operating on, which is quite slim, you know, the likelihood is that you're going to see more restructuring, more closures of titles more layoffs, you know, it's a sort of an acceleration of the existing trends. And this is bound to create more conversations about the place of paper in publishing full stop. Tamsin, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Patrick. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.